0: Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect program. At this time, all participants are in a
1: listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the program, please press star then zero on your touch tone telephone. As a reminder, this program is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your host for today's program, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well,
2: thank you very much, Trenesha, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect program, and this is part one of Living, Coping, and Working with Cancer, and the title of today's program is The Challenge of Creating Supportive Work Environments for Employees with Cancer and Their Caregivers. Now, today's program is an important one, and it's one that really has tremendous implications for people who are in the workplace, both people with, living with cancer and their caregivers, Um, to be aware of many of the protections that the workplace offers them um, with a challenge of a health problem that they're coping with. It also is a program that we hope will be helpful to employers as well and human resource people in terms of understanding some of the sensitivities that might be important in dealing with people living with cancer as well as their caregivers. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort. It's an effort between Cancer Care and a number of other organizations, and I want to mention them all, the American Association of Occupational Health Nurses, the Association of Clinicians for the Underserved, the Association of Oncology Social Work. The Intercultural Cancer Council, the Multinational Association of Supportive Care and Cancer, and the National Family Caregivers Association. Now this collaboration has really enabled us to reach so many of you. And we're delighted with your response to our program today. We have literally over 880 people on the call today. And you come from all over the United States. Literally from large cities and smaller towns, and also from rural areas as well. And we also have international participants from Canada and the UK on the call, so it's a bit of an international component to the call as well. Um, you are clearly a group of information seekers who have chosen to spend the next hour with us, and we hope that you'll find the information useful to you. I would like to turn your attention for a moment to the materials that you received um in the mail from us. And uh and, and also some of you receive that online as well. There is an outline that has been prepared by our speakers. There is um, information um, actually about cancer in the workplace, review of your legal protections, a very nice piece that was prepared by uh Susan Slavin. There also is information about cancer care and our the various organizations that have partnered with us to make today's program possible. There is um, information also about um how you can support cancer care in our initiatives. And we hope that you'll take a look at that program, of that that informational piece about how you can support, uh, how, how your corporation can support cancer care. We hope that will be useful to you. Now, there also is an evaluation form, and we ask you to take a moment and complete that evaluation form. You know, your recommendations and suggestions really help us to keep these programs most relevant to meet your needs. And uh, indeed, uh, today's program is really based on many of your requests that we offer this program uh, to you. So please take a moment and complete that evaluation form. This Telephone Education Workshop series has been made possible by an educational grant from Orthobiotech Products LP, and I want to thank them for not only supporting today's program but this entire series. It's a very important um, initiative for us to be able to offer this to all of you. Now, we have great faculty on today's program, so I want to introduce our first speaker. Our first speaker is Susan Selzo-Sleben. Susan is an attorney, and she is the founder and president of Slavin Law Firm. And uh, Susan has worked with cancer care for many, many years um, in representing uh, people with uh, problems in terms of workplace issues. She is a, a nationally known expert in the field of uh, disability law and really helping people with accommodations in the workplace, and it's my great pleasure to introduce Susan to you. I've known her for many years, and uh, she is one of the most dynamic speakers I know. I'm going to turn this over to Susan.
3: Thanks, Carolyn. Thank you very much. It is, again, a pleasure to be here um, on this teleconference call, and uh, for the for the uh, audience out there all over the country and internationally, I just have to let you know that on April 5th here in New York, there were huge snowflakes coming down in Manhattan, where Carolyn is worked its way out to Woodbury, where Pat Spicer is your next speaker, and right here east towards Huntington, where I am. So we have snow today, um, which is a bit unusual. What is not unusual is the subject of today's um, discussion. And uh, we really have been doing these for over a decade. And the main focus and the goal of this seminar is to empower everyone out there. It is certainly not to get more work for attorneys. It is to let everyone know what your legal rights are, because once you know what your legal rights are, you are empowered. And there is nothing better and nothing feels better than empowerment. And we certainly know, we meaning the folks from cancer care, myself and our other guest speaker, knows that when someone this is a situation that goes on. It's uh it's it's not an isolated situation. When someone is diagnosed with a catastrophic illness, um, lots of other things swirl around at the same time. Uh, meaning am I getting adequate health care? Do I have to go through a gatekeeper? Will my HMO pay for it? Um, how can I take these days off from work? What kind of treatment am I going to get? Will I be sick? Will I be able to afford this? So in other words, there is so much swirling around just by virtue of a catastrophic illness diagnosis that these seminars, and naturally so, mind you, these seminars are designed to just, basically ratchet all the anxiety down and let you know what your rights are because these are rights that you have. We're just sort of going to shake them up. Uh, they exist. They're in your pockets now. We're just going to shake them up a bit. Um, I also want to say that this is not a legal seminar, and please don't feel that you're under pressure to take copious notes, et cetera, et cetera. This discussion is going to be up on the Cancer Care website, and there are a number of other websites that have this information. And at the end, I'll give you some um, self-help administrative agencies that can continue the discussion should you want. And you certainly can always give Cancer Care a call at the 1-800 number with follow-up questions. Uh, as you can with my office. So no one's going to be left behind with the information. So if either I talk too fast or my New York accent is a tad too thick, I assure you, you will get the information. Okay, so why are we here today? We're here today, and I use the word catastrophic illness. The laws that I'm going to tell you about are for with catastrophic illnesses across the board. It's not just cancer law. We are here in a, in a forum for cancer care, but the laws that I'm telling you about, the protections that I'm telling you about, are for catastrophic illnesses across the board, um, multiple sclerosis, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, blindness, across the board. And why are these laws important? These laws are very important because they provide protection for people with disabilities to continue to work. Because, frankly, we as a society very clearly identify ourselves in most instances by what we do. And then you put into the, the mix that we've been diagnosed with a catastrophic illness, and it not only affects us physically and psychologically, it affects us financially. So there, and I, and I say this, I've said it for almost 20 years I've been doing this, if I had a nickel for every cancer survivor that I've had the privilege to represent and talk to in these 20 years, everyone 201 wants to continue to go to work, to continue to maintain the normalcy of their lives while fighting this disease. Okay, so that's the setting of what we're there. The second thing I want to be very clear about is, especially when you start talking to lawyers, um, these situations of workplace discrimination are not like accidents at a red light. In uh, in other words, bang, there's a dent, oh, look at that, and you have a, a lawsuit. No. These situations of workplace discrimination take time to develop. They are not so obvious. In other words little subtle things. Gone are the days, and Carolyn and Pat certainly know this case, when 20 years ago we had a case that made law in New York and rippled throughout the country. A woman by the name of Jane Karishkat, a breast cancer survivor who was fired by her law firm. She was a law secretary. Uh, Jessel Rothman Law Firm fired her because she had cancer and because she was undergoing treatment. And they basically said that at the trial, Bang, that doesn't happen anymore. I mean, I'm sure that discrimination in the workplace occurs, but it's not that overt anymore. Twenty years ago, before these laws came into effect, and people were less sophisticated and less knowledgeable about their protections. Meanwhile, by the way, the law was changed in New York to afford reasonable accommodations, and Jane Karishkat, cancer survivor, is doing just fine today. Okay, so you first must understand that don't think you're paranoid. In other words, if you're at work and subtle changes are starting to happen, it's not because you're paranoid. They probably are happening. Um, Our experience tells us that when people go into the workplace and say, look, I've had a diagnosis of cancer um, and uh, I need some treatment and time off, generally what happens is that the workplace wraps themselves around the person, you know, good for you, we're with you, okay, anything you need. And then as time goes on down the road, as what I like to say as the, you know, the hair comes out and the wigs go on and more accommodations are necessary, that's when possibly changes in the workplace occur, possibly negative changes. So you've got to be on top of that. So the first thing I'm going to tell you about, And, again, this is not a law class. There is a wonderful law, Americans with Disabilities Act. It is a federal law throughout the country. In order to be under the umbrella of protection of the Americans with Disabilities Act in the United States, you have to be, one, a disabled person under the ADA. Number two, you have to be qualified for your job and perform the essential functions of your job. Number three, that gives you a reasonable accommodation. Now I'm going to unpack that, okay? Let me also say that the federal law, which I'm telling you about, is the Americans with Disabilities Act. Every state in our union also has their own state laws, human rights laws, which in New York they clearly mirror the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. So there are lots of protections out there. I'm going to give you the the theory is pretty much the same. Okay, number one, I mean, just let's all assume we're in a workplace of whatever shape, manner, or form. Number one, are you disabled? Do I have a disability that is defined under the Americans with Disabilities Act? Okay, and that definition is pretty, is pretty straightforward. You have to have a physical or mental impairment which substantially limits a major life function. And a major life function is working. So that definition precludes things like temporary. The flu isn't included in this. A broken elbow isn't included in this definition. Anything temporary in nature is not included in this umbrella of protection. So do you have a disability which impairs a major life function? Okay. Or do you have a record of a disability? And that becomes particularly pertinent to cancer survivors because you may have come through a cancer bout years ago, and therefore you are cancer-free, but you have a record of it. And you may be in a workplace where suddenly someone is not promoting you because they buy into that myth that, you know, cancer is a death sentence, which we all know it is not. Or another myth that, that's, uh, particularly pernicious out there, which is people with cancer can't do their jobs, which we know that's not true. So that's why that definition of a record of a disability. Uh, similarly, this would be, uh, like people with AIDS. Is there a record of it? So it doesn't just have to be cancer. It means I had an illness at one time. I have a record of it, the employer knows it, uh, even though I'm fine now. It gives me protection under the ADA, okay? And the third part of that definition is, or is there a perception of a disability? Going back to the case of Jane Karishkat, the breast cancer survivor, 20 years ago, when we went to trial on that, um, on the record, in the court transcripts, when I asked the office administrator, Why did you fire Jane Karishkat five days after she started chemotherapy? The office administrator said on the war record in sworn testimony in Summon Substance, well, because my cleaning lady had breast cancer and she was throwing up all over the bathroom floor, so that's how I knew Jane Karishkat couldn't do her job. Well, that's so ridiculous. It was, of course, ridiculous, but that's a that is a example of a perception of a disability. Okay, so you fall within that umbrella. You 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 are defined, you fall within the definition of a disability. What's the second thing you need? Second thing is can you perform the essential functions of your job? And sometimes this becomes very difficult for cancer survivors. I mean, you know, Pat and, and Carolyn and I have been well, I, I know I've been doing this for almost 20 years, and they were doing it longer than I. Um, sometimes the treatment, you just can't perform the essential functions of your job. And if indeed that's correct, then you do not get the protections of the ADA. So let's just flip it the other way. Can I perform the essential functions of my job? And that just means not – for example, I'm sitting here, I'm an attorney – Um, What do attorneys need that are essential functions? Bang, bang, bang. What does a teacher need that's an essential function? You know, you can figure out what your occupation is and what is an essential function and a non-essential function. So the ADA says, can you perform the essential functions of your job, and here's the kicker, with or without a reasonable accommodation? So we've gone step one is am I disabled under the umbrella of the definition. We've done step two. I have identified what the essential functions of my job are. And now number three along the continuing, can I perform these with or without a reasonable accommodation? So let's give you real live examples. Most cancer survivors, what they want is a reasonable reasonable accommodation more than anything else is an adjustment of their schedules they want to be able to have a flexible work schedule which allows them to get their chemotherapy in a timely manner without literally having to beg in the workplace because they shouldn't have to beg in the workplace nor should they have to be afraid of their jobs so if on the other hand someone is is prepping for a bone marrow transplant and has just or has had it and is, or is about to have it, I would say, and I'm not a medical person, that whatever reasonable accommodation could be afforded me, I can't perform the essential functions. So I would not have the umbrella of protection under the ADA. You have to be realistic, and this is why, The, the social workers at Cancer Care, which are trained oncology social workers, are so good. The groups are so good because they're going to help you talk this through. And you may want to work, you may have, you know, you may have every ambition and every desire to go to work, but sometimes the body is just not going to let you do it at the present time. That doesn't mean you're not going to get there, but, so you have to look at that in a realistic manner. So under the ADA, you get what's called reasonable accommodations. And, again, for cancer survivors, it usually is a schedule, uh changing of a schedule, accommodation in a schedule, maybe an ergonomics chair, maybe um, a switching out of where your office is to another office in case you're sitting under a uh, an air conditioning vent. A reasonable accommodation is a very fluid concept. It's It's a personalized concept. And we ask you to have conversations with your employer. And Christine is on board today. She's uh, representing employers who who understand the importance of um, working with their employees. Um, and And quite frankly, as I like to say when we talk to employers, is you help this employee over this blip in their life which you have at the end as the employer is the most incredibly loyal employee employer relationship that one could ever want and i do assure you it is a blip in the course of a lifetime so what we say to cancer survivors is have a conversation with your employer go to the hr person um it can be as simple as look i've been you don't have to bear your breast." This is not confession. You don't have to give them the, you know, every little detail and nuance of the disease. You don't have to give them stage one, stage two. You have to have a conversation. It's in your benefit. You can have a conversation with the HR person. Look, I've been diagnosed with a serious illness. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to have treatment and I need a reasonable accommodation and this is what I would like. Enter into a discussion. Not adversarial. Because, again, once you're finished with this, first of all, you are empowered and you are taking the bull by the horn. And quite frankly, from a legal point of view, the employer cannot be charged with discrimination and having to be like a mind reader. If you don't tell the employer that something's going on and you need a reasonable accommodation, that employer is, and if you get fired, and I just want to tell you, you know, if there is an adverse, uh, determination or an adverse, some um, adverse, uh, situation happening in the workplace, a reduction of force or you get terminated for performance or you just get terminated, I mean, if you then go, oops, but I have cancer, you know, you just can't throw all this into the pot. Being, being under the umbrella of the protection of the Americans with disabilities means that the employer cannot terminate you because of a disability, all right? But you have to make sure that you enter into a dialogue with that employer. It doesn't mean that they're entitled to have your medical records. But, again, this should not be adversarial. What I do want you to do in the course of this entire process is I want you to keep contemporaneous notes. We always tell our clients this. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be expensive notebooks. Go get those little black-and-white composition books we had as kids, spiral notebooks. Don't keep the notes in front of the employer. But when you get home or when you get back to your desk, you know, jot down who you spoke to, what, you know, what was said, et cetera, et cetera. These contemporaneous notes provide a record if and when it's necessary. It doesn't even ever have to come out, but it's an empowering tool for you it's a reminder, because tell you the truth, sometimes these drugs may be heavy on your head, heavy on your brain, so it's good to be a reminder, and it's very empowering okay we we're gonna move, and Carolyn, you let me know how I'm doing on time, okay? so you have about perhaps ten minutes okay, then we're good. um I want to segue very little into uh long term disability policies. many employers now. Uh, afford, or people have private long-term disability policies. Um, What this means is if you are disabled, then there is a source of revenue out there. I just need you to be very careful. When you are going on long-term disability, you are in essence, not in essence, you are actually signing applications which say, look, I cannot work because of this illness or that illness at the present time. Remember what I was saying to you about the Americans with Disabilities Act. The Americans with Disabilities Act says, I can work. I can perform the essential functions of my job. You have to just – it's a little bit hard to say you have to be careful on all of this, but you do, because you are in a universe. You, the person with the catastrophic illness, and your family are now in a universe of what we call the alphabet soup of disability. I think that's a coin that the lawyers made years ago, but this is what I mean. You have the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Sometimes some of you will be eligible for Social Security Disability, SSI. We're going to be talking in a minute or two about the FMLA, the Family and Medical Leave Act. You have health insurance, your group health insurance, which is governed by a law called ERISA, E-R-I-S-A. I've just talked to you about long-term disability payments. That's LTD. Some of you may be on workers' comp or have eligibility in some way, WC. This is not to frighten you. This is just to say to you, it's not like an accident at a red light. You have lots going on in this universe. And I always say to every client and everybody I've ever spoken to about this, you the patient, who are going through lots and myriads of things get somebody to help you along with some of this paperwork um a primary caretaker or someone who can give assistance because there's a lot going on out there and it's perfectly reasonable to have someone a good friend a son a daughter a parent somebody that you know you can bounce these ideas off of because there is a lot going on and 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 it's important it's important for, for your well-being psychologically, and physically. Okay, a law that was passed, one of the most exciting things that's happened, actually, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which came out in early 90s, and very shortly after that, the Family and Medical Leave Act, FMLA, um, have really changed the landscape of disability law, certainly in this country, and very exciting for those of us who have had the honor and privilege to advocate on behalf of the catastrophically ill. In the Americans with Disabilities Act, in order to be afforded under the umbrella of protection, there has to be 15 or more employees in the workplace. 15 is the magic number. And you cannot be an independent contractor. That's a 1099. It has to be an employee W-2 situation. So you're all out there saying, well, what am I going to do if I go, if I work for a smaller company, which most of us do work for small, quote unquote, mom and pops, under 15. That's where the state law protections come in. And here in the state of New York, we get the same protections under our state human rights law if there are four or more employees. So that covers the gap, uh, be- between those employers who are under 15 and over 3, and that's, that captures a myriad of people, okay, for these protections. Now we're going to segue to the Family and Medical Leave Act. That law covers employees, employers who employ over 50, 5-0 employees. And why is it 50? Why isn't it 10? Why isn't it 15? Why isn't it 3? Because that's what Congress enacted Um, I think this was the first bill that uh, Clinton signed when he came into the presidency. That's just a compromise in Congress. It's 50 or more. And what happens if you work for 50 or more? Well, then you're entitled to take 12 weeks of unpaid leave, unpaid leave, in one year for the birth of a child, in order to care for a spouse, a son, daughter, or parent, or your own serious illness. That's the Family and Medical Leave Act. And what does that entitle you to? That entitles you to job security. If you are on the Family and Medical Leave Act, you get job security. You cannot be terminated when you come back. Your position has to be there waiting for you, and if it's, and if it's not, there has to be a reasonable equivalent. This FMLA is fabulous and wonderful in one vein, meaning that you can take care of yourself or a spouse, child, etc. cetera, but on the other hand, it's unpaid. So what are people going to do if they, you know, are out of work and don't get paid? Well, that's a tension that exists in the FMLA, but thankfully states now are coming on board with their own state FMLA um, plans, which offer, and you'll have to check in your own state, offer insurance similar to workers' compensation so you could get paid for a Family and Medical Leave Act. But on the federal level, it is unpaid. It is unpaid. You do get job security. The employer has to continue your health benefits during that period of time, if the employer contributed to your um, your payments, has to continue. Now, a lot of questions have come up under the FMLA since its uh, enactment, and this is the big one. It's 12 weeks. It's intermi- It can be leave across the board, 12 solid weeks, or it's intermittent. You want two days here, three days there, five days there, a morning here, a morning there. That's absolutely okay as long as you're in conversation with the employer. The employer can request medical documentation, in order for you to become eligible for the FMLA, just like the employer can request the same thing for the ADA. That doesn't mean you have to get your medical records by the droves out of Sloan Kettering. No, 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 no. A simple certificate from the doctor should do it. The employer is not entitled to every nuance of your medical condition. Period, the end. Okay? So just remember, you have that protection. The problem with the FMLA thats that, People will say, well, gee, I have two weeks vacation coming to me and a week of sick, so you put those three weeks onto the 12 of FMLA. Oh, goodness gracious, I have 15 weeks. No, absolutely not. The employer can require that you take accrued vacation and sick time towards your FMLA 12 weeks, okay? So it doesn't prolong it. Many people will call up and go, But I don't want to be on the FMLA. I don't want to be on the FMLA. Well, you know, in this, in, we're all here sitting as, as advocates for the catastrophically ill, but there are two sides to the, to the equation. There's the employer side also. And, and, you know, employers have rights also. And the employer has the right to require that you use your vacation and sick time towards the FMLA leave. Um as it what's unique under the FMLA leave, which I like, is that you're not required to have the magic words and go in there and go, May I have my rights under the FMLA? No. The employer is charged with the responsibility. If the employer knows of a situation where the employee would be eligible for the FMLA, the employer is required to bring that to the employee's attention. And then the employer lets you know in documentation that your leave is starting and when you're expected back. And I will tell you, I've had cases where people have called me up. They have not gone back into the workplace after the FMLA for whatever reason, shape, or form. And they've been terminated, and that's perfectly appropriate. Again, there are two rights on this. There are two rights and responsibilities. The, The employer has rights and responsibilities, as does the employee. And it works it works in tandem, and that's why we ask you, and we not ask you, we say to you as a strategy, enter into a dialogue. You know, Carolyn and Pat and I have said this for many years. We much prefer um, our clients, patients, etc., to be in larger companies, and the reason we like that is because the larger companies have sophisticated HR departments where the HR professionals really know these laws and, and are there to help implement these laws. Um, I, unfortunately, if I'm going to see discrimination in the workplace based on disability, I more times see it coming from smaller, smaller companies where, you know, they're sort of, you know, the, there's one person that has many hats, the owner has the hat of the HR person, the benefits person, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's when problems occur. Also, for those of you that work for larger companies, you have employee handbooks. Make sure you take a look at those. Um, Carolyn, can I just quick talk about portability? I know we're not talking about insurance. Would you
2: say something about portability, and then would you conclude with the EEOC just to the role of the EEOC gotcha. and all those things?
3: Okay. Uh, this, uh, this is not a seminar on on, um, on health insurance, but I would be remiss, I believe, and, and we've talked about this, um, those of you that have health insurance, Many, many years ago, prior to the early, nine, the, uh, like, 97 or 98, people with catastrophic illnesses were stuck in the workplace. They had what was called job lock because they were receiving their benefits for the employer, from the employer. They were receiving chemotherapy or courses of treatment, and they were locked into their jobs, quote, unquote, because if they switched health insurance carriers, they would be, um they would be X'd out of coverage on the new carrier for what's called a pre-existing condition. Thank goodness that the consumer laws changed in the late 1990s, and we now have what's called portability, portability. In other words, if you have health insurance with, say, Aetna on working for slave and law firm, and you want to go to the job at Jones Law Firm that has Prudential, you could portably go there and, as long as there was no break of greater than sixty days in your health insurance, you would not be subjected to a pre existing condition limitation. I just want to raise that. I know I did it in a real short shrift, but i want it, it's a red flag to everybody it's a it's a It's a wonderful green light in one way but a red flag in another. The green light is that you have portability of health insurance and There's lots of materials out there that explain it to you, and that's wonderful. But the red flag is you cannot have more than, it's really a 63-day break, but I always say 60 because that's what people remember. You cannot have more than a 60-day break in coverage. And the way you accomplish that is through something called COBRA. So we have other programs at Cancer Care dealing with health insurance and Hopefully, Carolyn can tell you if and when they're scheduled. But I want—it's very relevant to our subject here. And finally, on the back of um, my form, um, there are. This is a self-help area. In other words, you don't need lawyers, as I said. If you think you're being discriminated, if you think you're being discriminated, the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, uh, we give you the 1-800 number. We give you the website. It's in. Every major city, these folks are wonderful. They're investigators. They'll do this for free. Um, they will investigate your claims. They will give you assistance for free. It's wonderful. Also, all of the states, if you just look in the yellow pages, have divisions of human rights. Look in the yellow pages uh, of your phone book for the State Department of Human Rights. Also, the vast majority of attorney generals um, in each state now have what are called healthcare bureaus, healthcare bureaus, and they can answer insurance questions for you like I've just described on the portability. Again, look in the yellow pages under Attorney General, Healthcare Bureaus. In other words, these are, there's no reason anyone out there should be at a loss for resources. There are tremendous laws now that protect you, wonderfully so. Um, you may not be feeling great if you're undergoing treatment, and that's understandable, but there are plenty of people to help you um, and guide you through this so that when you come out the other end of what I call the blip in life, um, you know, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a mother who's raised teenagers, and they're now in their late 20s, so I like to say, you know, when you get through it all, you're stronger for it, and I thank you.
2: Well, thank you, Susan, for a superb presentation, very encyclopedic, covering a a broad range, and we actually could listen to you all afternoon. We will have time for questions. I know there are questions in the audience, but just an excellent presentation, as always. Thank you. Our next speaker is Patricia Spicer, and and Pat is an oncology social worker, and she is the Breast Cancer Program Coordinator for Cancer Care, and Pat is going to talk about some of the emotional and social challenges of working with uh, cancer and also um, as a caregiver. Pat?
0: Well, thank you, Carolyn, and, thank, and I'd like to say hi to all the people who have joined us today for this very important um, uh, telephone education workshop. Um, I've forgotten how dynamic Susan is <laughs> and how wonderful it is to have a chance to work with her again. I'd like to talk to you today about cancer in the workplace and about the issue of either returning to work after your diagnosis and treatment or continuing to work um, and it raises many issues for both the employee as well as the employer. I'd like to just briefly present a couple of statistics um, about cancer so we can understand the scope of the program. Uh, Eight million Americans are living with cancer diagnosis at this point in time. Five million of those will survive for more than five years after diagnosis. Eight out of ten women diagnosed with breast cancer will survive at least five years, and 80% of people diagnosed with cancer plan on returning to work. One out of every four employees will at some time be diagnosed with cancer, and one in four cancer patients will experience some form of discrimination. So you can see how large the scope of the program is. The forms of discrimination, it can take the form of refusal to hire. Uh, An employer will not want to take a chance on hiring someone who may become sick or disabled. Failure to promote, because you have been diagnosed with uh, a serious illness, they don't think you're going to be capable of handling more responsibility. Demotion, taking away the job responsibility that you had and putting you in a lesser situation. Or denying time for medical appointments. Uh, Susan spoke at length about the need for reasonable accommodation, and most employees, uh, employers, as she said, are more than willing to do that. But in some instances, they will become sticky about it and will try to refuse time. Susan spoke about some of the cancer myths, and there are one or two others that I think we should touch on. Uh, Certainly, hopefully, people have passed the idea that cancer is an automatic death sentence. But there's also the myth that survivors are unproductive, that once you've had a diagnosis of cancer, you are not going to be as competent as a worker as you were before that. And again, as I said, that people with cancer are poor risks for promotion because they're going to become ill again or won't have the same um, desire to work that they had before. I'd like to touch a little bit on the meaning of work in our society because it's an important reason why people are so anxious to go back to work. It establishes our identity. Um, How often have you been in a social situation when one of the first questions you're asked is, what do you do? We are identified by our work and how we perform in society. It gives us a sense of purpose. Um, Many of my patients will talk about how important it was to have a place to go every day, to do something that helped other people, and just the, the social atmosphere of being surrounded by people she worked with, her colleagues, um, people who uh, she was friends with and who provided a social atmosphere as well. There were also financial concerns. Susan touched on insurance. Uh, medical bills are huge. Not everybody has excellent coverage, and particularly if this is the main of uh, source of income in the family, to lose that source of income can be a dreadful blow to the family and to the security of the family as such. But before somebody goes back to work after a diagnosis or continues to work, there are some things that need to be considered. And the first off, as a cancer patient or as a survivor, you have to look within yourself and evaluate your own readiness to work. You may want to go back if you're on chemotherapy or radiation or want to continue in your work role, but you have to think about, in fairness to yourself and to your employer, are you ready to resume a full-time job? Do you maybe need to think about going back after after, uh, chemotherapy when there is still a level of fatigue and you may not have as much energy as you had prior to your diagnosis? Is it better for you to think about coming back part-time? Also, the time of the day is important. Many patients tell us, particularly if they work nights prior to their diagnosis or prior to being on treatment, that it is difficult to make that switch uh, to staying on a night shift after going for treatment during the day. So a discussion with your employer, is it possible to do this in, in another time frame? Can you switch my shift so I can continue to work, continue to go for my treatments? but I would feel more comfortable and experience less fatigue if we could look at that. Also, medication and side effects. Um, if you're on chemotherapy or your employee is on chemotherapy, they are going to experience fatigue. Uh, there is less, certainly, in the way of nausea but uh, because of the new medications that are available. But you still have to consider that there can be side effects. Uh, there can be side effects to the radiation with uncomfortable skin burn as a result of it, and you have to think carefully about how is this going to influence my ability to do my job and for the employer to be sensitive to that these things do exist and that they may need a little bit of accommodation to get through it. The other thing you have to look at when you're evaluating a readiness to work is the physical limitations. Susan spoke um, a bit about the accommodation in terms of if I have metastatic bone disease, do I need a chair that's gonna be more comfortable? Is the work I do physically demanding? Uh, If you're a post office employee and you're lifting heavy packages or you're required to be out in all kinds of weather, am I going to be able to cope with that? And the psychological readiness is important too. As much as you want to continue to work, or go back to your office or to your job, the fact remains that you have been through a difficult time in terms of having a life-threatening diagnosis. And it takes time to adjust to the idea that your life and your family life has been changed. And sometimes the demands of work piled on top of that can be difficult to cope with. Many patients tell us that after the first three months, when they've been through the start of chemotherapy or surgery or diagnosis, then that's the time when they tend to experience some psychological reaction, and returning to the work or continuing to work can exacerbate those feelings of sadness or depression. So you have to think carefully about, is this a good time for me to get some outside help, either from a social worker or from a psychologist? You might also need to brush up on your skills. And for an employer, this might mean having the the, uh, employee come in a little bit to look at new computer programs or what has been going on in their Job situation and for the employee, again, going in and maybe a day earlier and looking to see whether there's anything new, any changes that have taken place in the job, so you don't suddenly come back and feel overwhelmed with all that's going on. There are emotional reactions to a diagnosis and treatment and to coming back to work. And some, of it, some people tell us about a sense of awkwardness, that they feel strange coming back into the workplace, even if they've worked there for a number of years because now they're different. They feel set aside from the rest of the workforce and that they experience some sense of apprehension. Uh, Are my coworkers going to accept me? Uh, Am I going to be treated in the same way I was before? Uh, If I look different because I'm wearing a wig or uh, because I have a brace on, is this going to make a difference in how people treat me? For the most part, people are hopeful. They hope to be accepted in the same way that they were before. They look forward to being in the work role again and to being with their colleagues. But there is that sense that there can be some awkwardness. Um, just some tips for employers for those of you who are out there. Um, and that's one of the most important things is to honor the request for confidentiality. It's Let the employee decide what their co-worker should be told. Some people are perfectly comfortable with talking about their diagnosis. Others would prefer that it only be told to certain people within the workforce. For an employer, they can be helpful in terms of reassuring the person's co-workers about changes that may take place um, so that people don't become resentful about having to pick up somebody else's workload. The other thing to do is make no assumptions about uh, the ability to perform the job, either on the part of the employee or the employer. Uh, You may have to make changes, there may need to be adaptations, but at least give the person a chance and be fair to your employer as well, is if you can't do it, then by all means, admit it honestly and ask for help. Also, it's important to educate managers about support Mm -hmm. and referral to human resources should a problem involve and teaching managers to keep open communication in order to adjust a workload or a schedule. This means that not only does the employer have to look at how this person is surviving in the workplace, but the employee themselves, again, has to be honest about what they can and can't do. Employees have been very creative in their responses to to a cancer patient in the workplace, and they have helped to rethink job responsibilities to make it easier for the person to continue to work, to develop a system for the employee to have a point person to work with, so that there's someone that they can go to directly, in being flexible, uh, in allowing time for medical appointments or for time off if necessary. Some have gone so far as to help set up a home office, and if that's possible within your business or for an employee to ask for something like that, it's a good possibility. And also talking honestly with one another about the limits that the cancer diagnosis and treatment has uh, imposed. The request is also there, as Susan indicated, for accommodation because of treatment needs. And it's important that both the employer and the employee keep accurate records of the request and how they were handled, and also to respect the company policy on confidentiality. The employer has a right to expect some idea about the duration of treatment on any treatment-related abscesses, but as Susan said, you don't have to walk in with your file for memorial phone gathering and put it on the desk. They can ask reasonable questions, but they cannot delve too personally into it. <laughs> for an employer, that you can offer support throughout the treatment and recovery. People tell us it's been so important that their employer was understanding and supportive. For the employer to also understand, as Susan pointed out, what is legal and required of the company, and to take a good look at the company health plan. Is it really meeting the needs of your employers? And to inform employees of all their rights and protections that is available under uh, their coverage. There's been a great deal of progress made in terms of survival for cancer patients, and there is still a lot to be done. And there is still an unfortunate tendency to equate a diagnosis with cancer with the inability to function. But being informed about patient rights and educating employers remains an area in which healthcare professionals can play a major role, and seminars such as the one we held today certainly help to promote that. Thank you very much for your attention.
2: Thank you, Carolyn. Well, thank you very much, Pat, for just an excellent, uh, outstanding presentation as well and just really identifying many of the issues that confront people living with cancer in the workplace and their employers as well. So thank you. And our next speaker is Christine Fasasica. And Christine is really backed by popular demand. She's vice president, global work-life solutions manager for J.P. Morgan Chase, and she's going to present a, more of a corporate perspective in terms of how uh, workplace um, really copes with issues around um, cancer in the workplace. Um, Christine.
1: Hey, thank you. I'm, I'm very happy to be here to share what J.P. Morgan Chase is doing around this issue, this very important issue. issue. Um, many of you know the name J.P. Morgan Chase, but I think may, some may not realize how large we are. We have 165,000 employees worldwide. 135,000 of them are in the United States. So, and in, in listening to Pat's statistics, uh, in one out of four employees will be diagnosed with cancer. That equates to about 40,000 potentially um, in the future for J.P. Morgan. So this is is a big issue, um, not only for the organization, and it's becoming more commonplace, as we all know. And I know each each one of us, um, you know, understands the magnitude of this. Um, I wanted to talk about three areas today, um, time off, management practice, and uh, support and resources. Um, I know we have limited time, so I'll just go through them um, rather quickly, and then we'll entertain questions. Um, under time off, um, there are a number of policies um, of laws that are out there that certainly we as a large organization um also abide by so clearly fmla is a big one in the organization that people use um, the americans with disabilities act short-term disability we let people use vacation um, and also on the the long-term disability side employees can pay for that on their own if they choose to um, all of those though um, with the exception of the vacation are without pay and short-term disabilities with part of your pay um, we recognize that um as Susan mentioned, um, that financial issues for employees are significant. Um, that that is a goal for them is to see how they could continue to be paid um, through the, this difficult time and through the time that they need off. So, in responding to that need, J.P. Morgan Chase created a policy called the Acute Treatment Policy, specifically for this intermittent leave that people need to deal with their chemotherapy, radiation treatments. Um, this is out. Side of short-term disability, and employees are immediately eligible. So there's no waiting period to access this time off. And in terms of just details around how it works is that employees are required to work um, 60% of their scheduled hours. So it will typically be on a pay schedule, which we are paid um, twice a month. So if they can do that, um, they receive 100% of their pay, and they require documentation for this. Um, This is not many companies offer this type of leave, but we recognize that this clearly is responding to this critical issue. Um, The second, which is tied very close to how that actually works itself out in terms of the you know working 60% of your schedule is around management practice so you know in theory that's you know the acute treatment policy um, allows employees to do this but on the practical level sitting at their desk the management practice of implementing this is very critical um, it, it is all around how managers understand the policies but also how flexible they are in terms of reasonable accommodation and, and understanding. I think um, communication is clearly key to ensuring that all of this works, um, and that the employee needs to communicate what's happening—not you know the, the details necessarily—but you know a broad overview of what's happening and what type of accommodation they would need in terms of their schedule. Um, we're fortunate at the, at the at JPMorgan Chase that w- there's a lot of flexibility. We have a flexible work arrangements policy, which, which helps with this, gives managers a little bit more guidelines as to how to actually make it happen. Um, so for em- employees that have the type of job where they can work at home, um, they are set up with a computer and access their files at home. Um, we also have flex time, so if they need to come in later or then leave later, um, or reduce schedule. So there's a number of different ways that uh, managers can do this. Um, they also can shift their responsibilities to lighten their workload, um, as well as they can also, uh, managers can help get them the equipment they might need, whether it's a chair or whatever, whatever, it, you know, whatever the case may be in terms of equipment that would help them um, in their situation. Uh, We work with managers on this a lot in terms of regular flexibility, so if you kind of take away the whole cancer issue um, and work with managers specifically on how to help someone through a difficult situation and and accommodate their schedule, um, you know, that that happens quite frequently, um, you know, at the organization. In terms of the support and resources, um, we are fortunate that we are a large organization and have many departments that are there to assist people. We have an extensive um, medical and wellness department that are available for information on the topic, for, you know, checkups, um, and a place to rest. So if someone just needs to during lunch go lay down, that's also available to them. Our resource and referral program is also available for information, for resources, research um, on the topics, and they're very, very helpful. And just um, you know, a word about this kind of on a, uh, a more personal level, our the person that we deal with in our resource and referral was diagnosed with breast cancer, so she services our account, and you know, kind of you know, the the their her company that she works for, you know, really. Uh, did a great job in accommodating her, and she didn't miss a beat. She, You know, we knew the days that she would be going for her chemo treatments, and she tried to do those on Thursday afternoon, and she would take off Friday, but she would always leave a number um, where we could, you know, if we needed something on a on a Friday. And she was great about communication, about when and where she'd be and how she was feeling, um, so it worked really well. And she, you know, it's been two years now, so she's doing great. Um So, you know, kind of in action, you know, able to see an example of that and our employee assistance program is available. And um, Pat talked about kind of the emotional response when people find out about the diagnosis, you know, the whole um, cycle of, uh, of responses and with sadness and depression. And we have a, a great employee assistance program, and part of the, the service is that they are enti- employees are, and their family um, are entitled to six sessions, six free counseling sessions. Um, and I know a number of people who have taken advantage of that, and um, it's really helped them out. Also, through our, our EAP, um, they if, if there's a need, and it's really based on employees requesting this, they form support groups. Um, For cancer patients. Um, They've done this in the past for a period of time, and it's both with um, not so much the newly diagnosed, but people who have survived or who have, you know, gone through some treatments, and the group really helps, depending on the stage that they're in, and their treatment really helps one another um, through the process. And then the last thing that we had done, which was very well received, was educational seminars. Um, a panel discussion of cancer survivors, and, you know, this was extremely helpful um, to employees in the audience, whether they themselves were cancer survivors um, or had been diagnosed or have family members who were diagnosed, and it talked about living with this and working and, um, you know, just going through the whole process and um, it was a great source of strength for people, and um, we invited the Susan B. Coleman um, organization to come to that as well, and we got tremendous feedback from that. and um you know our, we're considering doing it was um we had done it in two or three locations and we're considering doing it again but um just to close um, this clearly is an important topic for people and you know as a large employer JP Morgan Chase is committed to responding to our needs of empo- uh, to our employees and where we can try to Um, try to help them, accommodate them through the situation. And as Susan said, this is really a blip in a a career, you know, of many years. This is just a very short time that we can help someone through this difficult period, and we recognize that the loyalty factor will certainly pay off in the long run.
2: Well, Christine, that's really an excellent – you've given some wonderful messages and just a wonderful representative of a corporate model that really has been responsive to people living with cancer and their caregivers, I want to thank you for your excellent and just outstanding presentation as well. This has been quite a, quite a, a wonderful speakers today, winning faculty. Um, we, I would like to take a few questions. So I'm going to ask our audience to work with us to keep your questions brief and general in nature, and we'll try to answer your questions. Um, you know, and uh, so if Tanisha could uh, explain to the audience how to queue up for questions, and if you could bring our speakers on board so we can all have their lines open, Tanisha Well, I want to thank all of our speakers today. They've been really quite a winning team. I want to thank all of you who queued up and asked such wonderful questions. I know there are other questions in queue, and I'm going to ask you to call us. Use our 800 number where we'll be waiting for your calls, um, and we do want to attend to each of your questions. And even to even those who asked a question, we'd like to spend some more time with each of you to address them even more fully. So I want to thank you all for participating on today's call. Um, There is going to be a part two of this call on May 10th. We hope you'll participate in that call as well. I want to thank you all for participating and I want to wish you all a very fine day.
3: Ladies
0: and
1: gentlemen, thank you for your participation. Just include the program. You may disconnect and have a wonderful day.